With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's show is sponsored by Otter Labs. Otter, O-T-T-E-R, like the cute little animal, is a simple software developer staffing and augmentation company, which basically is a fancy way of saying that we help you hire inexpensive, mid-level, or senior software developers relatively quickly. Check it out at HireOtter.com. So I started Otter after my last company, Home Hero, where we raised $23 million of venture capital and built a sizable team of developers in Argentina. And when we sold the company, the acquiring company didn't want to hire the developers. So we helped connect them to other founder friends looking to hire. And that just kind of snowballed into Otter and into the large network that we have today. So it's a fairly boutique business, and we help people really hands-on find good culture fits and uh, good tech talent for inexpensive. Argentina is a great place to hire developers because they've got great engineering schools. It's on a similar time zone as the U.S., and they're just much less expensive with inflation rates that they're dealing with down there. So reach out to us at hireotter.com if you'd like us to send you software developer candidates. Also, we have as a sponsor on the show today, Redeem, spelled R-E-D-Triple-E-M.com, which is the safest place to trade Bitcoin and discounted gift cards. So the vast majority of the cards are Amazon, and whether you're buying or selling, it doesn't matter. It's a great place to, to exchange. Uh, typically, the discounts are between 5 and 25%, depending. They've got other brands, Walmart, eBay, Best Buy and dozens of others. So check it out. You can jump right on and start trading. It's a great way to go from Bitcoin into Amazon, which I'm sure if you're like me, you spend vast majority of your money on Amazon. Uh, that is redeem with triple E M dot com. All right. So today on the show, we have Sunena Tujita. She's the head of digital assets and blockchain at TD Ameritrade, which is a massive business, one that probably cares a lot about the future of digital currency. So we have a really exciting and very optimistic conversation. She has an incredible perspective that seems to just be relentlessly optimistic, which I think is a useful perspective to hold. And sometimes I'm sure in large entrenched financial companies. There is a interesting debate internally. Uh, so I tried to dig into what TD Ameritrade is like on the inside. And I think we got some interesting perspectives. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Ah! All right, we're back on Around the Coin with another show. We have a great uh, guest today, Sunena Tuticha. 
Can you pronounce that for me just to make sure? I know you just told me how to pronounce it, but just <laughs> do it again to make sure I had that correct. No worries. Close enough. Uh, Sunaina Tateja. Tateja. Okay, great, great. And Sunaina, you are the, uh, now I'm quoting LinkedIn and, and you told me this a little ahead of time, but you run basically at TD Ameritrade all things digital assets and crypto. Do you want to, just to kick it off, give me a little bit of background on your career and how you got into TD Ameritrade, if there's anything juicy and interesting prior to TD and uh, what you're kind of thinking about on a day-to-day basis now? Yeah, lovely. Uh, Thanks for hosting me on your pod, Mike. Uh, Delighted to be here. Uh, Yes, as you referenced, I am currently the head of uh, digital assets and DLT at TD Ameritrade, or I guess, you know, the chief uh, troublemaker and causer of insouciance, I suppose. (laughs) Um, But I very much enjoy it. And, you know, just for the benefit of your audience, in case they are not familiar with TD Ameritrade, you know, we are one of the largest online brokerages with a footprint in the United States and Asia. And uh, the segments that we are myopically focused and have been serving over the last 40 years are retail investors, uh, active traders, and the RIA community. Um, In terms of my background and career, uh, I've spent majority of my career, I would say, at the intersection of finance, technology, and policy to some extent, and kind of covering a variety of um, roles, including as a builder, uh, operator, uh, investor, advisor. Um, But I would say the common denominator for me has always been this obsession for how do we tap into the power of technology to continue to break down barriers that still persist in financial services and really that goal of empowering everyday consumers uh, to take charge of their financial freedom and their financial independence. Um, And, you know, I've been uh, super grateful, uh, uh, you know, for all the opportunities in my path that have enabled me to kind of build new franchises and solve these gnarly problems. Um, But, you know, again, with that focus of how do you continue to level the playing field and in essence, uh, democratize uh, finance. And I would say a lot of that has kind of, you know, stemmed from my personal background as, you know, daughter of first generation immigrants and, you know, other attributes. But that has kind of remained my core, I would say, focal point. And with that, you know, it's been an amazing journey kind of working with, uh, you know, up and coming nascent technologies and really commercially commercializing them in a meaningful manner, ranging from artificial intelligence, machine learning, the power of voice messaging, and of course, you know, our favorite subject of uh, crypto. <laughs> Huh, yeah. Uh, so backing up a step, where did you grow up? What was your early childhood experience like? So I moved around quite a lot, um, you know, so uh, spent some time uh, in uh, the UK, in India, uh, but I, I, I kind of, you know, spent a, a big, ch- I would say the early part of my adulthood um, in Canada, uh, you know, in Edmonton, Alberta, go Oilers, uh, <laughs> Gretzky country. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and frankly, you know, I actually never knew that I would end up in finance, uh, you know, from a very young age, I had a different obsession and I wanted to be a pilot. And I actually started flying when I was, you know, like 14 as part of the air cadets. And the big joke in my family was, 
I needed my parents to drive me to the airport. But when I got to the airport, I could fly around in my little Cessna. Um, so, you know, yeah. so so finally, when I turned 16, they're like, now you got to learn how to drive. And to this day, Mike, I am a way, way, way better pilot than I am a driver. <laughs> uh, so feel free to hop on in my Cessna for a quick flight around town. Uh, but, you know, maybe don't hop on in my car if I offer you a ride. <laughs> um, That's funny. But yeah, you know, it kind of started as a summer job in finance and iBanking, kind of, you know, and then one thing led to another, um, you know, kind of, you know, very early on, you know, late teens, I was diagnosed with a health condition that kind of rendered my dream of becoming a commercial pilot kind of evaporated. And so I kind of, as I joke, my first, you know, you know, there's a joke, right? Millennials are supposed to keep changing their careers very often. And my, and I joke often that, you know, my first career kind of ended before it started, but, you know, nevertheless, kind of, you know, serendipity um, took over and, you know, I was, uh, you know, working in finance as a summer job to pay my way through university. And, you know, just again, as I mentioned earlier, kind of really latched on to this concept of, you know, there's so much opacity and complexity, unnecessary complexity and opacity in financial services. And I saw that firsthand, you know, daughter of immigrants, uh, you know, who are small business owners. Uh, So kind of that led my passion to stay in finance, but with the mindset and the mental model of how do we break down those barriers and make it more accessible for everyday consumers, um, you know, to take charge of their financial freedom and be more informed and be more engaged. Mm, wow. Well, quite the adventure, I'll say. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, especially the pilot. It seems like it seems like you made the right choice, whether by force or by choice to, to not be a commercial airline pilot. Like it feels like one of those professions that seems so exciting when you're young, but then you think about the reality of sitting on you know, 10 hour flights and it just seems so boring. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I see, it certainly seems like flying small, smaller planes and uh, uh, working in like crypto seems more interesting and engaging. Um, I think so. You know, I, I very much enjoy the notion of a single engine plane. And, you know, along the mm-hmm. along the ways, I was able to get my aerobatic license and do some crazy things with it. And, you know, uh, so, yeah, I, I fly very regularly. I flew quite a bit this weekend. Um, but, you know, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's better off as a hobby an outlet versus it becoming a job. And especially with everything that's happening in the world where even commercial pilots aren't doing that much flying, I'm grateful to kind of have found my way into this crazy yet, you know, utterly fascinating world of crypto. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about, do you live up in the Bay Area? Is that right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are you a fan of the Blue Angels? I remember I was living in San Francisco like six years ago and they, when they come through town, it's just like, the whole city is just rocking. They fly so close to the buildings. It's just mind blowing to me. It is. And and I think, you know, during the quarantine, obviously we're still in a quarantine here, but I know, I think it was around the May timeline, if I'm not mistaken, they, the, the blue angels did fly by routines. I think, you know, in New York, in LA, San Francisco, uh, Washington, DC, just as a thank you to, I think, you know, first responders and healthcare workers. So, you know, I, I tried to catch as many of them and definitely follow along <laughs> on social media. Yes, definitely obsessed with flying and Blue Angels. And I know this is not an aviation podcast, so I, I promise I'll stop talking about, you know, my obsession with flying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I find sometimes the most interesting conversations are the ones that are like offshoots and, and like side passions. 
they tend to sometimes they like, you know, they weave into the other, you know, crypto and payments and everything in, in, in kind of unanticipated ways. So, yeah, I love that. I love I love I think that the passion of, you know, side projects and like side interests very much uh, drive a lot of sanity for us, you know, for incredibly focused on one thing. Life sometimes gets a little dull. So it's good to have some diversity of interest, especially a cool thing like that. Um uh, I want to ask you though. So TD Ameritrade is a massive company. Most of the people we have on the show are startup founders. They're running anywhere between like, or investors and they're running like, you know, teams of anywhere from two people to a hundred people or a couple hundred people. Um, I, I don't have much experience working in bigger companies. Uh, what is the, what, what is it like? I mean, for someone who maybe has no working experience or no working experience inside of a big company, what are like, how is it? My intuition is that there's more politics, there's more bureaucracy, obviously not just at TD Ameritrade, but just larger human organizations generally. Is it a different kind of person that succeeds in in those uh, larger companies? Or, yeah, I'm curious your take on, uh, you know, given that you've worked at TD for a while, what what you see as the difference in, in culture and kind of the the things you wouldn't necessarily see unless you worked inside of a big company for a period of time, uh, if anything comes to mind? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, I have, as mentioned, I have spent a lot of my time uh, and career, uh, you know, at this intersection of finance and tech and really working very closely with the startup ecosystem and the VC community, not just in my current role, but in a lot of my previous roles. Uh, and, and that's a question I, you know, uh, often kind of get. And, you know, as an advisor, you know, I, uh, you know, I also love helping startups that maybe are meeting with a big company for the first time because, you know, they want to do business with them or they want to get an investment with them. And sometimes, you know, you're playing the role of a translator where you're helping uh, mm-hmm. a big organization understand the nuances of the startup world. And you're trying to help your friends in the startup world kind of understand, you know, the the language of a incumbent or a big company. Um, you know, I, I think there are differences, but I think those differences are I would say need and necessity based. And what I mean by that is, you know, let's use TD Ameritrade as an example. And again, you know, context that might be helpful for your listeners is we, you know, consider ourselves as one of the original fintechs. And what I mean by that is, you know, People don't realize that our current state of, you know, investing where you and I can pretty much go on to our smartphone of choice today and in a couple taps be able to trade very seamlessly and, you know, often at zero commission, that wasn't always the way right? This is actually a very recent phenomena that started with something called a Mayday event. Now, as a pilot, the word Mayday, uh, you know, uh, sends uh, shivers and uh, kind of a negative Pavlovian effect because that's a danger call. But, you know, in financial services and investing, Mayday is actually a very glorious thing. And what I mean by that is until 40 years ago, uh, in uh, you know, in, in, in the late seventies, for you and I, as an average American consumer, to be able to access capital markets and buy stock was actually a very painful and Herculean effort, right? You had to be connected to folks on Wall Street. You know, you. Um, 
had to have a large amount of capital and you had to be willing to pay hundreds of dollars of commission just to buy, you know, a, a single or a couple of stocks, right? And what happened with Mayday in 1975 is SEC instituted a rule change, which for the first time kind of brought in market-based pricing to the world of investing. And that actually led to the creation of what we know today as online brokerage. So I share that history because, you know, our genesis is rooted in disruption. Uh, and, you know, we believe and, you know, and, and that event for the first time kind of transformed Wall Street and enabled everyday consumers to become investors and traders and led, you know, the first big wave of wealth creation in the United States and then, you know, around the world. Um, so our, we started as a startup, right? Today, obviously, we're a big company. We have 10,000 amazing employees, uh, majority in the U.S., but some in Asia, so, you know, I understand that shift. Obviously, I wasn't there, you know, 40 years ago. But again, I think when I, you know, there's a lot of benefits that you get being within an incumbent or a big company, obviously, scale and mass distribution is one of them. But, you know, you give up certain things, perhaps, you know, like speed and agility, and there's a level of inertia that sets in. But sometimes that inertia is needed, because you can't have an established business that's responsible to 10,000 employees. But, you know, over 10 million clients to just do things willingly. You know, the whole notion of break things and apologize later doesn't work in that scenario, right? Whereas with a startup, you have the speed and the agility and the flexibility to just change things on the go and figure it out on the go. But what you need is that scale and distribution. So one of the things that we've been very passionate about in our journey with digital transformation and also as we've been building our crypto practice is this notion of partnerships and investments, right? We we don't believe that it's, you know, an incumbent versus a startup. I believe in the notion of the best of both worlds. So as an incumbent, we can bring scale to the table. And as a startup, you can bring speed and perhaps, you know, innovation and new technology to the table. So how do we partner up and almost create this force multiplier? I think the competition often really is, you know, there's this notion of can an incumbent with scale overcome its inertia and with speed leapfrog before a startup that has speed in its DNA build up its scale and distribution, right? So what we often look for is what can we bring to the table and who can we partner up? Um, so kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think that's a, a more productive view versus kind of the whole, you know, uh, zero sum game view of things, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. I think zero sum is uh, is a it's like a fear based mentality. You know, the idea I heard this recent, you know, probably some YouTube algorithm where I got fed a Jeff Bezos quote, but he was talking about uh, thinking about customer focus as yeah. opposed to competitor focus, which is such a good thing, regardless of the size of the company. But for people to think about, like, it, it, it's amazing how just I, th I feel like it's the way our human brains are wired that we just think about the competitor or the person that's going to take away our cheese and a zero sum mindset. When in reality, if you just outperform and deliver value to people in the long run, it really is a it's it's operating not out of fear and scarcity, but out of love and generosity, which I just I see the pattern across companies that tend to do better over long periods of time and tend to be, you know, better places to work. And they seem to have that mentality. 
don't know. Maybe Oracle is different. It seems <laughs> no, I think that's, that's, that's very well said. I, I definitely subscribe to that, you know, a notion of an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset, whether it's, you know, uh, as a professional or even in your personal life. Uh, and I, I just think it takes you down different paths in your thinking and in your choices and in your action. Uh, and again, you know, again, like you, perhaps, you know, I am an optimist uh, by default and perhaps to a fault. So maybe that's just my, you know, default state, um, you know, but, but I think, I mean, you, you know, a big part of your audience, as you mentioned, they're investors or founders and, you know, they'll probably relate to it. One of, uh, one of the defining books uh, that I try to read at least, you know, every year over and over again, even though I read it multiple times is Peter Thiel's, you know, zero to one, you know, and the core thesis and, you know, first principle of that book is, you know, stop worrying about competitors and kind of create your competitive, create your compounding, uh, you know, value proposition. Uh, and, you know, it's not so much of a, about a competitive difference versus a comparative difference. So I think a lot of that thinking definitely underscores, you know, how I think about innovation and hopefully what I've been able to kind of bring to TD Ameritrade and kind of, you know, uh, you know, it, you know, integrated into the DNA of how we think about this. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I recall him talking about Peter Thiel that uh, th- that that's kind of America's niche is the zero to one mentality, mm-hmm. which it seems compelling. I mean, do you do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that uh, that's growing or shrinking that kind of mentality? I mean, I see it in the say the automotive industry where you know cars are invented here in America, but then you know Japan uh, optimizes the process with uh, I think Toyota. And they just become hyper efficient at things. And it's almost you could see it in the Japanese culture in that they have this like perfectionist mindset, but not necessarily the zero to one mindset, which I don't know, maybe there's something about, you know, the immigrant story of America that you kind of think more like an inventor or an entrepreneur by default, as opposed to an optimizer or, a you know, a, an operator. I don't know if that do you does that make sense? Would do you do you agree with that? Uh from, I guess, even just your own experiences, uh, you know, parents who were immigrants to the country? A hundred percent. You know, I am very much a believer in the notion of American exceptionalism. Uh, that in no way means American perfectionism. You know, we, you know, we're a very, you know, we're a very imperfect uh, country. You know, I'm often reminded of, I think it was a Churchill quote, uh, I think where he said, Americans will always end up doing the right thing once they've tried everything else, right? So, so <laughs> That's a good quote. you know, I think so. I think, but I think, you know, again, having spent time personally um, growing up around different parts of the world, uh, but also professionally having traveled intensely around the world and worked with partners, uh, you know, in Asia, in the EU, uh, and, you know, in Canada, in the U.S., I would say there is an X factor about the U.S. that, you know, as much as there is a lot of narrative about the demise of the U.S. And, you know, we should never be hubris or complacent. Uh, we should always be trying to get better. But I think there is that X factor around, you know, uh, being an entrepreneur, kind of, you know, never giving up. And I think this notion of resilience uh, and relentlessness and almost like resourcefulness that's very unique to the U.S. And, you know, while I started my professional career in Canada, 
you know, and I've had the opportunity to work briefly in the EU, as I mentioned, and, you know, in Asia, you know, the one of the first few times I started working in the US, like, I just knew it. I'm like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's this weird thing that I can't describe, but I'm like, oh my God, I found my tribe. This is where I belong. Really? These people get what, what, what was it? What, I mean, what, how did you, what was the day that that happened or what, what triggered that? It was this notion of, uh, you know, where, entrepre- where, where entrepreneurs are celebrated and failure is recognized and encouraged. Um, and, and I think the sense of it's okay to push the envelope and, you know, operate on the edges. And again, that's just synced very nicely with kind of how I was thinking about my career, which was really about, you know, how do you take frontier technologies and commercialize them in a way that's driving value and doing it without a playbook. You know, again, this notion, but going back to my flying, you know, it's like trying to fly your plane while you're fixing your engine, right? Which is not fun, but sometimes you got to do it, right? Mm. <laughs> so, so you know, and I think in the U.S., there's just a, that just the, I think just the mental model and the muscle memory that's kind of not just built into the private sector, but also the way our public sector operates. And listen, I know people who are probably listening to this podcast are probably going, things don't seem to be going all airy fairy for us at the moment. And, you know, you know, and there's a great deal of turbulence that the world and the U.S. is dealing with. But I, I think, you know, at its essence, there is an X factor that's very unique to the U.S. And you just look at the number of people who've, you know, come to the U.S. and have become founders and built companies and done things that they normally would have never had the opportunity to do. So, you know, I'm, I'm not giving up on the U.S. just yet. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'd be in a dark place if you did, <laughs> regardless of what the outcome is. Um, do you, you kind of made me think about something when you when you were saying that. Do you do you think that along Peter Thiel's popularized idea that uh, growth in the United States has slowed in, say, the late 60s, 70s, and since then it has been somewhat of a cannibalized system of one industry eating the other or moving beans around to make it look like there's growth. And I think he would agree that 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 the accumulation of more and more regulation in, say, healthcare or the financial services industry is a signal that there there really isn't as much growth as we're touting. Is that are you familiar with that idea? And then do you agree with that idea? Um, you know, I think it, it may vary by categories. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I know there's a lot of conversation around bit, you know, innovation in the world of bits versus bytes, right? Um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, that argument kind of definitely has merit. Um, but again, I think there's a lot of things where we are seeing, you know, exponential progress. But I think, you know, you know, innovation isn't also something that happens in a vacuum, right? I think we live in a global economy. Uh, and, you know, the level of, you know, interconnectedness is obviously very, uh, you know, uh, ob- you know, it's, it's pretty obvious uh, as, as we're seeing it play out. So I, I don't think that it's, hey, again, I think I go back to it's not a zero sum game just because if we do it, somebody else doesn't get to do it. Or if somebody else gets to do it, we don't do it. I think there is uh, there. I think that, I think it can be very symbiotic. Um, so uh, I, I think there's a lot of innovation happening and will continue to happen. 
uh, you know, and perhaps it will happen at more of a global stage, uh, you know, and again, you know, there's a lot of startups that have benefited from that global stage. Um, so I think I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. What, what's your take? I know, uh, earlier on, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, policy being one of the areas that you focus on throughout your career. My general sense is that we have too much regulation in the financial services industry across banking. Like if I wanted to spin up a bank, it's super difficult and expensive. I'm sure I haven't looked into it in detail. It's not that it's impossible, but it feels like whether I'm building uh, uh, on the ACH system or wire system or banking or some sort of lending platform, like the the number of rules and regulations and vagueness in all those rules and regulations and the cost to, to start one of these companies seems so high and so difficult to uh, like to, to, to innovate, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like the accumulation of regulation in, in certain sectors defines the rules so that entrepreneurs find it really difficult to break the rules, to find new ways to connect value in different areas. Do you feel like we have gotten to an overwhelming point of regulation or, or the flip side, do you feel like we have too little in different areas? I'm curious what your take is on policy. Like if you were, you know, if you could wave a magic wand <laughs> and, you know, you want the best for everyone and you want to minimize scammers and, and fraudulent actors, but knowing that there's always a price, you know, you can't have perfection because then you'll never have any growth or progress. But yeah, what's your, what's your take on that? Do you think, how would you change, change the game if you could do whatever you wanted? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's a very broad question in terms of policy, you know, at large. Um, I think it's definitely a balancing act, right? Um, Listen, we are ultimately at its foundation in the business of uh, trust, right? Our clients, um, you know, take their livelihoods and, uh, you know, all their savings and their aspirations that they have for those savings and investments and trust us with it, right? So Mm -hmm. there are important guardrails that are neat to have, not nice to have, right? So I do, and you know, and and if if you look at a genesis of a lot of the policy and regulation, whether it's in, uh, you know, a variety of categories, not just in finance and beyond, you know, there's a logical reason for, for why that, you know, policy was required, right? Now, obviously, you know, regulations and policies evolve, you know, the view I take is ultimately, you know, and, and, you know, let's bring it back to digital assets, perhaps, right? You know, the way we've approached even the, you know, our entry into the world of digital assets has actually been very much, um, you know, anchored in this notion of education and advocacy. And what I mean by that is, you know, the clients to whom we uh, to, to whom we cater, and you mentioned this earlier, which I 100% agree, and kind of guided by the voice of the client and the client demand and kind of helping them, uh, you know, uh, on ramp into the world of digital assets. For us, it has to be, you know, complemented uh, and often led with education, right? We know even in traditional investing, um, 
education is the silver bullet, right? Uh, an educated investor is a more confident and empowered investor. With digital assets, that becomes even more paramount, just given the nascency and perceived complexity, right? So we lead with education and education and content that's, you know, rendered in kitchen English, kind of stripping away, you know, the unnecessary technical language and lexicon and jargon and you name it, so that the end consumer really understands the choice that they're making and ensures that the choice that they're making it best fits their needs, right? And, and and that education, it often becomes the DNA of policy because at the end of the day, policy and regulators, you know, from a first principles view uh, are in place to ensure the safety, soundness and security of the consumers that we're sa- serving, right? So it's that balance of how do you meet those needs of ensuring that your end consumer uh, is, you know, there's a level of safety, soundness and security for the end consumer while ensuring that, you know, you're still able to innovate and do it with speed. So not saying that, you know, it's black and white, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of debate and I think that debate is good, right? There has to you know, a, a mentor once told me uh, I was in a, a previous job and I think I was working on kind of building one of our new franchises from scratch and kind of really pushing the envelope, uh, you know, of what we were trying to do. And obviously, you know, I was working very closely with my BFFs from legal compliance, risk, you name it. And, you know, we were kind of kind of debating back and forth on, you know, how far we could go. And they were kind of letting me know how far I couldn't go. And, you know, I was having a moment of frustration and a, and a mentor really kind of put it in perspective for me and said, this tension is good tension. And I'm like, how can this be good? How can this be productive? Right. And his perspective was kind of eye opening to me. And he said, listen, your job and what you're paid to do is push the envelope and lead innovation and help us kind of, you know, leapfrog and, you know, go into new frontiers. Right. And their job is to kind of really make sure that, you know, we're kind of not deviating from the baseline and not getting the client or the organization in any kind of undue trouble, right? So that tension is actually built into the system. Now, what I've learned over the years in bringing innovation to life and big organization is it can be done. And the method I've deployed is really this notion of art of the possible, where anytime we start a project, and digital assets is a great example, as we've been leaning into this ecosystem, whether from a technology perspective, or an asset class perspective, one of the first set of players I bring in to my team are my BFFs from risk, compliance, legal. And that often surprises people. It's not the technologists, it's the support functions and kind of saying, listen, this is the goal that we're trying to achieve. This is the problem we're trying to solve. And you have a seat at the table to help guide that process and guide that product development. What it does is it gives them skin in the game, right, which is really helpful. uh, And they're committed to it. And then, you know, the deal is you come to it with an art of the possible mindset where it's not just a no, 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 no. It's okay. we understand what the problem we are trying to solve and why that problem is worth solving. Now, let now let's work together to kind of get there. Right. So I think that's more of a productive uh, view of accomplishing things, perhaps, than, you know, just the endless headbutting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. I think there's a, there, there, it's a different, it's a different, I mean, what you describe with, you know, if you go into a room and pull in your lawyers and your compliance folks, that's a different scene than like what a, a startup founder would go through for sure. 
Uh, I'm curious though, when you mentioned that, do you have, is there a closer relationship? Do you feel that larger companies have, um, well, let me ask this in a, in a more interesting way, like TD Ameritrade specifically, they, if you look at them from like a third party perspective, obviously they're massive and they have influence into the people who make the rules in the first place. I'm sure there's pretty close relationships, if not some kind of, you know, a person who is in charge of influencing policymakers, not in a negative way per se, but just helping to educate them. Uh, is that a advantage in reality that bigger companies have where they can have closer relationships to, uh, you know, the, the regulators who are making the decisions uh, that you see play out? Or do you feel like that's a pretty insignificant uh, card that bigger companies have? I mean, do, do you see that as a something that plays out in in practice, um, I think the, um, that you know that that's that's an interesting uh, thought. You know, the, I, again, I can only speak from you know my our personal experience. Um, so again, let's you know kind of think about digital assets uh, as an example. Um, you know, as TD Ameritrade, uh, you know, we've uh, you know worked with regulators and have, have a seat at the table with them, and we've actually been very proud to you know represent the voice of the retail investor and the RIA community over the years, right? And it's been a great working partnership with the regulators, you know, many different uh, of, of many different agencies. So I would say that relationship has been helpful as, you know, we've entered this uh, space of digital assets, giving us an opportunity to collaborate with them, educate them, and also kind of share our learnings, uh, you know, as we've been, you know, built, you know, striving to build uh, products and on-ramps and instruments in this asset class. So I would say in that, in, in that sense, it has been helpful. Uh, I, I think the other thing that's also helpful is if you have a good grounding and understanding of, you know, what current, uh, you know, regulatory policies are, and you can kind of create an analogous to how it impacts and applies to digital assets. I find that conversation is actually more productive. I, I, I do think in some cases, maybe in the crypto community, we've d- done ourselves a little bit of disservice with the narrative of look how different we are, look how special we are, and, you know, and carving out a niche, which has its benefits. But I think sometimes that makes... Um, uh, crypto intimidating versus inviting, right? Versus if you have mm-hmm. the conversation of, listen, this is how, you know, we do things when it comes to, you know, traditional derivatives market. These are the rules and the policies and the regulations that have helped spur the growth of that market. Here's the analogous to what's happening in crypto and actually what we can poured over from those lessons or from, you know, those policies, I think that actually helps, again, it become more of a productive dialogue. Uh, and, and I think yield, uh, you know, benefits um, that can actually continue to spur innovation. You know, I, 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 I uh, love reading uh, our friend Matt Levine, who writes for the Money Stuff uh, newsletter, if you're familiar with it. And Mm -hmm. uh, he, you know, once had this very witty quote, whimsical quote, as he is prone to do, where he said something akin to, you know, people in crypto 
are, you know, simply relearning the lessons of financial history, but at a much more accelerated pace, right? And, you know, and I think that captures it really well. Yes, there's a lot of nuances and differences about crypto and Bitcoin that we should embrace and proliferate. But I think there's also a lot of commonalities with the traditional finance that we can learn and port over and almost in a way help accelerate our our journey, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, that's an interesting perspective. I, I, I dig that. Um, one, one other thing I want to ask you about, and this is this is always a tough question to to ask and just to contemplate. You know, being that you're at TD Ameritrade, but say say we remove TD Ameritrade from the equation for a second, and I think the the thing I contemplate sometimes is uh, is that okay? We have a in the United States, we have the financial sector that in, that probably encompasses. I don't know, 15%, 20% of our GDP, you know, so many people in New York City working for uh, banks and investment analysts and, and everything else. And I think about cryptocurrency, specifically the technology underlying that in blockchain and smart contracts, and just the rate of smart people working on projects that seem to me that they would make a lot of the companies on Wall Street or just the financial sector, generally speaking, obsolete. You know, it seems like this this wave of uh, intelligent decentralization, it seems to just be centralized, it centralized, what would you call it, like power or influence or control of, of different companies. In most scenarios, obviously, there'll be certain scenarios where having centralization just makes more sense. But I wonder how this like shakes out for big companies. Like if it, if it makes, you know, I don't know what the composition of TD Ameritrade's uh, income is, you know, what, what types of services I imagine it'd be like uh, commission on trades or, you know, managing funds. And I'm sure you could answer that if it's interesting or relevant, but the types of trades that are interesting or the, t- the types of revenue sources that are the, the largest from these large companies, I, w- I just wonder if they become, if like, does TD not, uh, I'll leave TD Ameritrade out for a second, but do, do large companies like brokers have to make a huge pivot in order to stay relevant over the next, say, 10 or 15 years? Or do you feel, <laughs> it's a tricky question to answer, I'm sure, but do you feel like there's a there's actually a graceful um, adoption of decentralization in crypto? Yeah. I don't know if you have a reaction to that. That is a, something I've, I've really been thinking a lot about, and I'm sure most founders and people in crypto think about, is like, how, how do the incumbents really look in, you know, 10 or 15 years if it's a a displacement or if it's a downsizing or if it's an adjustment or if it's like they turn into glorified uh, venture capital arms where they're like investing in the future or capitalizing it somehow. I don't know. I'm curious your take on it. Yeah, it's a fascinating thought experiment and uh, something I definitely uh, ruminate about often. And I think, you know, financial services at large, but if you look at kind of, you know, um, just, you know, external shocks that, you know, we're kind of absorbing right now in terms of the health crisis, the economic crisis, et cetera, et cetera, like just the level of transformation that's happening or has been accelerated across numerous categories, right? And again, I think if you're wired like us and your audience that loves to solve gnarly problems, you know, th- there's no better time, right? There is a great stat, and I can't remember the exact number that shows the number of transformative companies that actually have 
about their genesis during times of crisis, right? Because these moments surface and spotlight uh, areas that, you know, um, kind of weren't working already and were ripe for change. And these events kind of help, you know, uh, accelerate that, that change management. So, so I think that's one viewpoint. I think in terms of Wall Street and, uh, you know, incumbents and the area of digital assets, listen, you know, I personally got enamored uh, with this you know, esoteric thing called Bitcoin in late 2011, early 2012. And I first started learning about it and discovered it. Um, And, you know, it happens to be and, you know, and at that time, I was working traditional finance, commercial banking, investment banking, and you couldn't be talking about Bitcoin, right? It was just blasphemy, right? It was just weird. Uh, and, uh, And, you know, it's 2020. And, you know, there's a part of me that's still a little sad that, you know, um, that the narrative that TD Ameritrade embraces blockchain and Bitcoin is still a bit of a contrarian view on Wall Street, right? Mm. I hope Mm. it won't be contrarian and it'll be a very blasé view in just a few years where everybody kind of sees that the value of the space is not in decoupling the technology from the asset class, but it's the inherent, uh, you know, and unique value proposition of the technology and the asset class, right? So, and again, I see that change happening, but I think, you know, I, I, again, I think it's an Einstein quote. Again, I might be misattributing it, but it's not so much about the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of the most adaptable, right? And, and and I think that quote couldn't be truer than at this moment, uh, whether you're a public institution, private institution, or if you're an individual, right? So so I think that notion of adaptability uh, is really going to help determine how an organization or a country or a individual, you know, what, what that what that looks like in years to come. Now, I take a, you know, more of an optimistic viewpoint in terms of what digital assets can mean to financial service. And frankly, that's kind of really what's driven our, you know, thesis into entering this ecosystem. You know, number one, for us, we, you know, one of the reasons that we got into this early on is, you know, we've been in the business of bringing Wall Street to Main Street, right? That has been the driving ethos of TD Ameritrade over the last 40 years. So for us, engaging with digital assets and entering this asset class was a logical next step. Now, it's a bit of a twist, because instead of taking Wall Street to Main Street, you're kind of taking a Main Street creation, like Bitcoin or Ethereum, etc., and almost bringing it to Wall Street, right? But we kind of saw this as a logical next step of what we did in terms of connecting everyday, you know, investors to markets, whether they're traditional capital markets or crypto markets. The second, you know, reason for why you know, you know, this technology and asset class are important is because it gives us an opportunity to really solve gnarly problems that haven't been solved in financial services and kind of create these new adjacencies, you know, for, you know, new revenue streams uh, or, you know, new diversified products, as you referenced earlier, right? One of the examples is, you know, you look at, you know, how many new assets and markets can be unlocked simply by the notion of tokenization, 
right? And think of what those markets that are now that can now be created in a way that they're liquid and transparent and have depth, you know, kind of what what type of, you know, wh- how that can spur up new activity, right? And we haven't been able to do that until now. So, you know, so that that that's an example of that second point. And then the third one that's kind of guided our uh, you know, strategy and entry into digital assets has really been powered by the voice of the client and the client demand. You know, uh, about a year ago, uh, you know, uh, my team and I decided, hey, you know, we have millions of clients that use our platforms every day. Um, why don't we add a little tab that asks them, you know, uh, are you trading crypto? Do you want to learn about crypto? Just a simple question. And I'm like, listen, if 100 people answer me, we're happy. It further, you know, uh, solidifies our business case. We'll take it, right? And Mike, I got to tell you, like, I was blown away. Thousands and thousands and thousands of our clients reaching out to us consistently and persistently, you know, you know, and, and it comes in different flavors, right? Either they're crypto savvy, where they're like, I'm already doing this and I want to do it at TD Ameritrade. When can I log into Thinkorswim and have my fiat portfolio on one side and my crypto portfolio all together, right? Or they're, you know, crypto curious where they're like, listen, I've been hearing about this thing called Bitcoin. I've been wanting to learn more. Where do I start? You know, what type of content should I be reading? Or third, they're crypto skeptic. And sometimes the skeptics are my favorites, right? And they're asking the hard questions. And I relish those conversations because you have an opportunity to educate them and help guide their thinking. So, you know, so for me, that client demand and the voice of the client has really been an anchor in terms of how we've thought about what our product roadmap should look like. You know, what should our investment strategy be in this space? What type of education content should we be creating? And I think you know, oftentimes when I talk to other folks, you know, who are trying to lead similar efforts, you know, at other incumbents, I often go back to what are you hearing from your clients, right? And one of the reasons why we've chosen to direct all of our crypto efforts to the retail investor and the RIA community with a myopic focus is because those are the segments we 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 serve and, you know, who we want to help on board and on ramp into digital assets. While there's a lot of conversation in crypto about, well, are the institutions coming, you know, in terms of hedge funds and, you know, endowments and other institutional players and helping them get into to this ecosystem, we're not distracted by that. And there's other great, you know, names in the space that are helping to do it. And that's great. You know, where we are focused on is really the retail investor, the RIA community, playing to our strengths, but also listening to our clients. Hmm. Good answer. Uh, <laughs> I dig it. Certainly, certainly, uh, yeah, certainly difficult to predict, right? It does seem like as much as I'm like, well, it, you know, maybe it shakes out where it's like a graceful on ramp and, you know, like the United States makes really intelligent uh, policy decisions and our economy is stronger in 20 years and cryptocurrencies flourishing and somehow the Federal Reserve is still printing money and that's relevant while Bitcoin and, and all the other currencies are also useful. It, it's just, uh, I don't know. It just seems like it's like in some ways I feel like we either, we as in like, primarily the financial reserve and government either has to like jump on it, Mm -hmm. you know, and fully embrace it or get surpassed by it. And it'll probably look like other countries who do embrace it and they see their economies flourish. Like, you know, I'm just picturing why can't I purchase 
uh, a piece of property in Miami with, for like, you know, I, I can take $200 in cryptocurrency and invest it into, you know, uh, distributed across a hundred different pieces of property in Miami and say, I just want to, I believe in Miami for whatever reason. And, and like using, using crypto to like raise up other industries. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sometimes just skeptical if, if we're headed that direction or if it just becomes, or maybe other countries like take it, maybe like Singapore and Estonia and smaller companies, countries, you know, take the lead and show, like prove the point at how it is actually more efficient and better for people. But it's a strange tension between large powers, whether they're government or whether they're corporations, and then what what is best for individual people. I don't know. It's kind of my my rant on it. Um, and perhaps I would kind of kind of submit the opposite view. I don't know that it's always about, you know, the institutions versus the individual. Again, I can only speak from my vantage point, which is, I've always looked at new technologies inclusive of, you know, blockchain and crypto. And one of the reasons, you know, I kind of became obsessed with, you know, Bitcoin when I learned learned about it many years ago was, yes, the technology aspect of it, but also the ethos of what Bitcoin represented and what it could mean, sure. you know, in terms of, you know, democratizing finance. And we're seeing a lot of that exciting work happen from a DeFi perspective. But even if you look at, you know, Bitcoin's original white paper, you know, how it could kind of help, you know, again, I go back to that notion of breaking down barriers and really empowering the self, uh, the individual, the notion of self-sovereignty, which I think is very critical. Um, But what I, what I would say though, is, you know, so, so two things. One, I think there is a notion of coexistence, right? You know, when, again, I go back to when I talk to a lot of our clients who are super interested and there's an increase in demand in terms of their uh, wanting to access education about crypto or wanting to, you know, engage with this asset class, you know, there is a bit of a delta in terms of what's attracting the new wave of market participants versus, you know, the folks who might already be in this ecosystem, right? You know, they are maybe less you know, interested or have lesser allegiance or no allegiance to the ideology, right? And they're really looking at it from a vantage point of pragmatism. Hey, this is good in hedge against inflation. You know, the notion, the narrative of digital gold or you know, this is good from an asset allocation or diversification perspective. And, you know, and my viewpoint is, you know, wasn't the original goal of Bitcoin to create a big tent and, you know, kind of be inviting to anybody and everybody. And, you know, and and it's not our job to have a shibboleth test in terms of do you believe in XYZ before you can buy Bitcoin or some other asset Mm. that, you know, our job is to really kind of make it accessible in a way that if you if this is the right thing for you and your goals, um, then you should be able to engage with it. Right. Uh, But kind of building those scalable, sustainable on ramps and infrastructure that supports that activity. And I think in terms of the speed of materializing, you know, one of the differences between the Internet, uh, you know, the innovation with the Internet and what we're seeing now, which is often a comparison is with the internet, you're right, a lot of the heavy lifting kind of happened in the United States and it got exported to the rest of the world. I think what's fascinating with crypto is the innovations kind of happening in parallel and simultaneously around the world, that it's not just the US, that different parts of the world are engaged in different ways, which I think is exciting. You know, we can export a lot of what we do, but we can also learn from what other countries 
are doing and have done, I don't think that's such a negative, but you are right. There has to, we have to maintain a sense of urgency and innovation so we can continue to kind of, you know, uh, leapfrog. Um, and and I, I think the final thing I will say with timing is you're right. Sometimes it does seem like, you know, a crawl, um, but you know, it's okay to take that crawl walk run approach. You know, I, I might be butchering the saying, but there's a really nice saying uh, in Silicon Valley, you know, uh, slowly at first, uh, and then all at once, right? The, these, the, these innovations can sometimes seem like, oh my God, we're moving at the pace of a turtle. But then one day there's a Cambrian explosion and then suddenly it, it's moving at the speed of light, right? So, you know, so I think, you know, we've seen some of those moments already happen in crypto. And I think we're going to see a lot of those kind of transpire in years to come. And I think that's why it's important, whether you're an operator at an incumbent or a founder or a builder or an investor, that we are just focused on kind of the notion of building and continuing to add scale and sustainability. So when, you know, millions and millions and millions of new market participants enter this ecosystem or engage with this technology, that we have the built-in resilience and scale. So anyways, I will pause a little quick. (laughs) I I love, I think you are one of the most optimistic people I've ever talked to, which I absolutely love. (laughs) I can't get a a negative perspective out of you, which I, which I like. It's refreshing. Um, What's your what's what is a what is a um uh a contrarian idea that you have? I mean, if you you know like it's like say say crypto or not crypto, wh- what what do you what do you hold to be true or believe to be true so far that you think most people would would disagree with you on? Um, you know, I, I mean, one that you know from a professional perspective that I, w- I would touch on, which is you know, I'm still surprised about um the fact that it's still a contrarian view. Uh, for a Wall Street incumbent to embrace blockchain and Bitcoin. Uh, I hope that doesn't remain contrarian for too long and that it just becomes a, you know, benign mainstream view. Um, But, you know, I think the other one, you know, that, I don't know, maybe sounds contrarian or not is, um, you know, as a, as a centralized financial institution, or as I've recently learned, it's called CFI, (laughs) you know, we've been Mm -hmm. very interested uh, in a DeFi, and uh, and that confounds uh, a lot of folks when I talk to them about it, and you know about you know that why would a CFI care about a DeFi? Again, going back to isn't it a zero sum game be- between a CFI and DeFi? But again, my view is I see DeFi as a really cool continuity of what what started forty years ago with Mayday in terms of you know democratizing. Uh, investing and financial services. And I'm really excited about all the work that's happening in the DeFi ecosystem. And it has, you know, ways to go. Um, And, and, you know, and, 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 you know, and and so I think it behooves us as an incumbent or a CFI to be leaning in and learning and engaging and participating, because for all we know, one day DeFi is just fine, right? Uh, and, and, yeah. and you can't afford to be left behind. And it, it's interesting, if you read the history of how the brokerage industry was built, Mike, one of the stories you often see is that, you know, as the, you know, as the TD Ameritrades of the world were starting to spur up, the incumbents of that time uh, start to call these startups 
quote unquote discount brokerage. And it wasn't a compliment. It was actually used as a pejorative because they were trying to get their clients to kind of say, you don't want to be dealing with something called discount brokerage now, do you? Right. But but we know how that turned out. So, you know, I always maintain the view that, you know, it behooves us to be learning and understanding and participating and contributing um, because you just never know uh, how that technology will manifest itself. And, you know, in a very uh, kind of consumer-led and relatable way, you know, I remember prior to the pandemic, I would often, you know, talk to my colleagues or friends about how, you know, I couldn't live without things like Instacart or TaskRabbit. Because, you know, I, oh, yeah. I, I am like, if I am not good at doing something or don't like doing something, I would rather delegate it versus, you know, kind of, you know, moan and grow my way into doing something. And grocery <laughs> shopping is not my thing. If I went grocery shopping, I would just come back with loads and loads of Halo Top ice cream. And that's not good. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I often got mocked or chided by folks kind of go, oh my God, you're such a millennial yuppie, you know, can't live without your, you know, apps, can't go to the grocery store yourself rhetoric. And it's funny when the, you know, when uh, the pandemic hit, the number of those same folks kind of reached out and say, wait, what was the name of that app again? And, you know, in talking to many of them, they're not reverting back. They are now, you know, lifelong, probably users of things like Instacart or TaskRabbit or some of the other equivalent services. So, you know, I use that cheeky example to illustrate that, again, you know, something that can seem very contrarian and novel and nice to have can very quickly become a need to have. And, you know, that's why whether you're an incumbent or a startup, you just have to be, you know, ready, steady, go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, Uber's in Uber and Lyft is such a good example in SF and hundreds of other cities, I'm sure, where it's like Uber and Lyft are a nice to have. And then they become the only option when taxis become extinct. You know, there's like, you could count the number of taxis on one hand in LA. Yes. And it's just like Uber and Lyft is everywhere. So what's kind of interesting is if they shut your account down, you know, if Uber decides, hey, we don't want you on our platform anymore, you sort of don't have access to transportation. I mean, if you lose Lyft and Uber together, unless you're going to be riding scooters around, which is, it's just kind of an interesting, it's a whole nother conversation, but just between how like, private sector companies provide infrastructure that becomes all of a sudden necessary. I got into a conversation the other day about net neutrality and um, just how internet and ISPs Mm -hmm. control the distribution of the internet. But at the same time, if you protect that business model with regulation and you block other companies from coming in with new innovative models, then you kind of get entrenched in this like narrow-minded thinking of ISPs, which in our case, AT&T and Verizon are just like local towers sitting on buildings, that that's the only way to do it. And uh, I was talking to uh, Kyle in our last show, and he was telling me about this company that Helium, they just set up these local spots in your apartment complex and you create this, you know, you can have like 10,000 little hotspots all over a city and that's how internet gets distributed and they use crypto. And I'm like, oh my God, that makes so much more sense. And yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting how private companies uh, overlap in, in infrastructure. Um, but I want to I want to not lose my train of thought. I, you, you, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, so the, I'm fascinated by the early days. So I imagine the early days, the brokerage were like Charles Schwab. Fidelity. I don't know too much about this, but TD Ameritrade and I'm sure the other ones, they come around and they basically say, hey, we're going to put 
uh, buying and selling stocks online. Was that, is that the, I mean, in a long story short, is that kind of the, the, the model that they all took and then it kind of took off from there and they charged commission to manage those trades? Yeah, I mean, not very different. You know, I when the Mayday rule change kind of came about, it really inspired, um, you know, the innovators and the operators of that time. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, the the founders of TD Ameritrade, Schwab, E-Trade to some yeah. extent. And they, you know, and a lot of them kind of came from the traditional brokerage industry and kind of, you know, again, you, you know, it's always, it's always um, good when you're building a company uh, on the foundation of solving a problem that you understand. And, you know, and, and what's that notion, right? You know, ship painkillers, not vitamins. And a lot of these founders really saw <laughs> that, hey, you know, why should, you know, I think they were driven by this ethos. Th- that's not very dissimilar to what we're seeing in crypto today. And with DeFi, especially, you know, this, this, this ethos of, why does financial services have to be this complex or opaque or why is access limited to a few? And, you know, if you read their biographies, they very much touch on this notion of, you know, or if you read the history of that time, that they were really passionate about how do we break down these barriers and how do we enable everyday Americans Mm -hmm. to access markets? And, you know, and then they were also driven by the fact that they believe that access to capital markets could be a wave uh could be a new way for wealth creation right and the cre- you know and kind of the creation of the middle class so they kind of looked at that problem and then this opportunity that made a the rule change uh kind of uh, uh you know brought to bear and then really using the technology of their time kind of start to build out these platforms right mm. you know i i know with td ameritrade's history we were one of the first firms to actually offer clients to trade via the phone. And then there was something called touchtone trading for those who might know what a touchtone phone is and how that might work. And then it was really about online trading, you know, in the early, early days of the internet and kind of using that frontier technology of the time to really commercialize it and render value to your clients in the business. And then the same with mobile trading, you know, mobile trading is not that long ago. I mean, you think about it was just, a you know, less than half a decade ago, where the notion of banking and trading on your you know, uh, phone just seemed unfathomable, right? <laughs> Isn't that so weird? I mean, now I think about anything that's available on the internet on my desktop yeah. is going to be available on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't that long ago yeah. that my yeah. iPhone or my quote unquote smartphone was really about, you know, playing Angry Birds uh, and Candy Crush, right? And and today- Is that anything else now? <laughs> and, you know, and if you had, I mean, and I remember this, this is in the span of my, I mean, you know, one of the things I often bemoan is I wish I was around when the internet was coming to fruition and all the great transformation and innovation that happened. But, you know, I saw to some extent what was happening with mobile. And that was actually one of the first gigs I did when I came to TD Ameritrade leading our digital transformation innovation efforts. And part of that was really building up our prowess in kind of the mobile space. And today, you know, if you don't have the ability to act on your decisions and trade at the moment with your smartphone at zero commission, well, how else could it be, right? So it just shows you that shift actually happened very quickly. And the ethos that led to that transformation is frankly no different than what we're seeing with digital assets, which kind of brings me back to why for us as TD Ameritrade, 
it just seemed like a no-brainer that hey, this is it. This is a technology and asset class we should be engaged with uh, because it's a continuity of what we've been doing since our start, and also it's led mm. by client demand uh, and kind of guided by the voice of the client. You know, and that's you know that's that's really central are, to everything. Are these? Uh, is I mean, you don't have to go into detail on this, but TD Ameritrade and I'm sure the other ones like Robinhood comes to mind. They don't offer, they don't charge any money on commission. So how, I mean, is there a simple answer to how TD Ameritrade makes all all their money? Is it on uh, lending out money that they have in the accounts? Is that... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's, I feel like I should know that. Yeah, right? there's many different business models, obviously, and you know, I, uh, I, 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 I can't go into too much detail. And I mean, obviously, we're a publicly traded company, and you can follow along our earnings releases. Uh, but you know, commissions definitely are one source of revenue. Oh, but- so they do. They do. I thought I thought they were moved off commissions entirely, but commissions still. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Equity trades are zero commission, but you know, obviously, you know, all companies have di- very, you know, a, a diversified mm-hmm. milieu of business models. <laughs> uh, you know, to, mm-hmm. to put it that way. And what company would you? What company do you admire? If you if you weren't working at TD Ameritrade, not asking you to move, yeah. obviously, but what other company do you really respect in? fintech or otherwise i imagine in fintech crypto or otherwise like what what one or two companies seem to really stand out to you as doing pretty amazing things wow um so many names <laughs> uh we could be here for another hour but we won't um i think from a fintech perspective um really uh fascinated and just appreciative of all the work that the team at stripe has done and just you know just yeah. so and, and you know and and you can't help but cheer them on uh, as they continue to grow. Uh, and, you know, and that comes back to the, the, where we started the conversation earlier, talk about, you know, a mindset of zero to one play out in action, right? So, so you know, I think, uh, you know, I think th- they're doing some really phenomenal work. Um, I think in crypto, again, you know, so many folks trying to kind of render value in so many different ways, um, you know, um, kind of just watching from the sidelines the work that's happening with at BlockFi and how they've continued to transform mm. themselves. Uh, and, you know, Zach and team, you know, really, really excited to kind of see. And, you know, and, and there's a really interesting notion playing out in crypto and, you know, from my, from, uh, from my vantage point of kind of leading partnerships and investing, I kind of see this, you know, there's a Jim Barksdale quote in Silicon Valley, where he said, there's really only two ways for a business to make money, either you're bundling or you're unbundling, right? And, and we're starting to see- <laughs> I love all these quotes. I got to write them down. <laughs> um, you know, and, 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 and we're kind of seeing that play out, you know, in our category in a very interesting way. There are aspects of crypto that are starting to bundle as we're seeing seeing through M&A where, you know, if you're offering uh, brokerage services, you want to add on prime brokerage, you want to add on, you know, some of those auxiliary services. But then there's also some level of, you know, unbundling happening where you're starting to see some really niche players that are very focused on like the compliance aspect or the data analytics aspect. So, you know, it's, you know, and in, 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 uh, and I think with uh, a lot of the regulatory clarity that's coming our way, uh, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting few years as we start to see, um, you know, IPOs and M&A, which, again, I think is just so great because, 
as I'm sure you know, a lot of the founders and operators in the space, you know, they've been toiling away. Like people forget, you know, oftentimes when people want to join my team, you know, I almost always try to talk them out of it. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, shouldn't be, shouldn't you be talking me into it? I'm like, this is, there's not a lot of, you know, glamour in doing some of these leading edge frontier type roles. It actually requires a lot of grit and grind. Uh, So you kind of have to be, you know, very resilient and relentless, I suppose. So, you know, and I think crypto is very emblematic of it. But, you know, I often tell people if one of the cool things about crypto is it's just so multidisciplinary, right? You know, you've got everything from the economics angle and the ideology angle and the technology angle and the finance angle. So it's attracted like people from kind of all different dimensions and domains, uh, which makes crypto Twitter very entertaining. But I think it also gives it a lot of vibrancy. And I tell people if you are insatiably curious by design, there's no better place to be than in crypto. Because again, as I said, like, I always feel bummed out that I missed out, uh, you know, the age of the internet. And I feel like this is that for our generation. And there's just so much exciting building and transforming um, that that needs to happen. And it's it's uh, I'm super grateful to, you know, be a part of it and hopefully make a small dent uh, in that journey. Big Den. Big Den. Sunyana, I thank you so much for your time and relentless optimism and insights and these quotes. <laughs> you have better quotes than anyone that's ever been on the show. So thank you so much for that. Where can people reach you? You mentioned Twitter. Is Twitter your go-to social media platform? Yeah, I am obviously on LinkedIn, uh, but you can also find mm-hmm. me on Twitter and on Telegram. And it's uh, my uh, first name at Sunayna, S-U-N-A-Y-N-A. It's one of the only benefits of having a strange name where you can get a one name handle. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to hear, uh, you know, from your audience and their ideas and feedback as we build, uh, uh, you know, in this ecosystem and uh, continue the conversation. Awesome. Well, congratulations on all your progress. And I look forward to seeing more of what what you do and TD Ameritrade does. And uh, yeah, it's exciting stuff. So thank you again for hopping on, Sunaina. And we'll have you uh, back again soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Great to be here. If you're still listening, consider giving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it. We also now have a Patreon page where if you feel generous and you'd like to help us continue to produce the show, please contribute. Anything you can would be greatly appreciated. We've self-funded the show for over seven years now out of our own pockets, and it is not free. So any contribution you could make is greatly appreciated. If you'd like us to bring on any other guests to the show, just reach out on Twitter at around the coin we'd love to hear from you thank you so much really and hope you enjoy the next show mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing chumba casino this year i was only playing for fun so winning this was a dream come true chumba casino is america's number one social casino experience it's serious fun with over 80 casino style games to choose from you too could win life-changing amounts of cash be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.